automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and pushed all those states into the red due to the lack of economic opportunities in those states. And we are about to do the same thing to jobs in retail, fast food, call center jobs, truck driving jobs, and on and on. And so we are in the third or fourth inning of this great economic and technological transformation. And the big problem I had with the New York Times headline is that it's not that the robots are coming, is that the robots are already here uh, and we're ignoring it even as they're changing our economy in ways that are negatively impacting millions of Americans. I, I think that level of disillusionment around around tech and you know where tech is leading us is something that's being felt in general. I mean, you look at certain data leaks at Facebook and uh, you know issues like that where tech is actually is really generating a lot of public consternation and a lot of public debate and how fast it's happening, uh, where it's happening, and what we should do about it. And it's really interesting that uh, that you know you are someone who's coming from the tech community, really you know, born of the tech community. So much of your work and your history is in that background. Um, is it time for an anti-tech candidate? And is that how you would describe yourself? You know, I, I'm very pro-progress and pro-innovation. It's just that we have to realize that that innovation is not being felt or broadly distributed uh, throughout our society. Hmm. And so to me, what needs to happen is a universal basic income, which I call the freedom dividend, where every American receives $1,000 a month free and clear as a result of all of our technological advances uh, paid for primarily by the companies that are benefiting from automation. So I'm certainly not anti-tech. I love tech. Uh, and I think we all should be in position to love tech if it was improving all of our lives instead of having the gains be concentrated in the hands of a small number of companies or individuals. So to make the argument that we can somehow slow down technology or, or, uh, or, or, or tell people, hey, you know, the, we, we, we need to control how fast technology goes, this isn't something that you think is, is, is possible. The bigger, the bigger question is, how then do we respond and how do we make sure that the average worker and the average American is protected? Well, there are a couple of things. Uh, there are certain areas where we should just be flat out regulating. <laughs> you know? like, like you certainly should be fatalistic and be like, oh, technology is going to do what it's going to do. Uh, and uh, we see that certainly with um, this Facebook set of issues. Uh, you can see that with AI, where we need to have people that are paying attention to things that really could uh, impact us all quite negatively. Um, but big picture, it's very difficult to, let's say, forestall automation. Because if you look at the forces that are transforming the economy, 30% of malls are going to close in the next four years because of the transition to Amazon and online retail. And it would be nearly impossible for us to somehow regulate away e-commerce. So there's a lot of it that you cannot realistically try to forestall. But then there are other areas like AI and cybersecurity and potentially data and social media and the impact of smartphones on our children's minds, things like that where the government should have a much more active role uh, and should in many cases be regulating. 
And so when we talk about things like the disappearing, you know, the, the disappearing jobs, it's interesting because part of the counter that people have uh, when they say, well, we just don't think that uh, we think we're going to adjust and adapt our way out of this. People talk about the transitions when we went from an agricultural economy to a manufacturing economy to an information to an information economy. And they said, you know, we've had all these different transitions. And you look currently, we're still under 5% unemployment as a nation. We still have a rising st- rising stock market. So we think that even as we go into this more technological-based economy, that we will just be able to create new jobs, the same way we have in all these other revolutions that have taken place. You think differently. Um, so the first is that the data is completely wrong, where the unemployment rate measures just the people in the labor force. It doesn't measure detachment, doesn't measure underemployment, And it doesn't account for the fact that our labor force participation rate has gone down to 62.9%, which is a multi-decade low and comparable to El Salvador and the Dominican Republic. So there are massive, massive problems with the labor market. And if you look at the history, the Industrial Revolution included mass violence, riots. The rise of labor unions had to negotiate for 40-hour work weeks, universal high school was implemented. There was massive change. So the lazy thinking that, hey, we've been through this before, if you look at the history, going through this before would predict a massive amount of conflict uh, and unrest. So the, 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 the last thing is that if you look at the actual data for what's happening to displaced workers in Michigan or Ohio uh, or West Virginia, There is no magical readjustment. Americans are moving across state lines at lower rates than they have in decades, and many of these people are suffering badly, so much so that the suicide rate has spiked among middle-class Americans to record levels. Our life expectancy is declining. Seven Americans die every hour of opioids. Uh, So whatever magical adjustment people suggest might happen is just not happening. And so it's just incredibly lazy, and no one's looking at the actual data. And what's interesting, you know, you you, you point out in your in your in your book, uh, this uh, soon to be released, the War on Normal People, uh, that you know there are presently a record 95 million working age Americans, a full 37 percent of adults who are out of the workforce, and in 2000 there were only 70 million. So we're talking about a difference of 18 years, and we've watched a jump of 25 million working age Americans who are out of the workforce. Yeah, that's exactly right. And a lot of that was because of the Great Recession, where many people left the labor market uh, and never came back. So when we talk about the, uh, the, the future, as you, as you said, the unemployment rate does not incorporate people who are, who are, who are, un, who are underemployed and also does not incorporate people um, who, are, who have essentially dropped out and have stopped looking. Um, when we look at the different technologies and, and different ways that people are, are thinking about what are those different industries that we should be moving people towards, how should we be thinking about the industries that people, that we should be moving more people towards that, that, that are growing and how the way we relate to all the other issues, education, transportation, et cetera, should be preparing people for the future of that workforce? Well, Wes, I'm actually, uh, like, like the framing of your question is so much what we, we've internalized as a society, which is we think, okay, um, it's not working, so we need to make people more capital efficient. Like, what are the jobs that there will be market demand for? 
And even if we were to be very, very successful in trying to uh, redirect people, reskill, retrain, it's not going to address the problem for the vast majority of Americans. If you look at truck drivers, the average age is 49, 94% men, average education high school, and government-sponsored retraining has been shown to be almost entirely ineffective, even when we know that a population is being displaced. So we have to start, we certainly should invest in trying to reskill people, and as president, one of the things I recommend is a great emphasis on vocational and apprenticeship, where there are massive opportunities or over-prescribing college and under-resourcing vocational jobs by a massive degree. But the, the, the issue, though, is that the logic of trying to make everyone market successful um, is going to fall apart more and more because automation is going to do the jobs not just of cashiers, uh, but also accountants, lawyers, insurance agents over time. Um, I'm standing in Silicon Valley, and the AI researchers here uh, believe that AI is going to be the new electricity and is going to be transformative. It's interesting you talk about the other the other revolutions that have taken place. One consistent in a lot of the other revolutions, whether it be agriculture to manufacturing to information uh, information, et cetera. Um, the question then was really how you know how does how do humans adjust to these new revolutions? The difference between this one is the question is are humans necessary? And, and how then do we think about ways to be able to support humanity when the fundamental, it's not even that the industries have changed, the fundamental question has changed about how these revolutions are taking place. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, what's interesting is in my book, The War on Normal People, the, the premise was very much economic and technological and labor, but then you end up asking very human questions because you think to yourself, okay, um, if you do have a large number of newly displaced truck drivers, what are they going to do? What is their new purpose, structured fulfillment? Um, because the data shows that if you have large numbers of idle men in particular, um, bad things happen. Uh, you know, self-destructive things happen. You do start transcending the economic questions quite quickly, uh, start asking the human questions, and that's where we have to be. We have so deeply drunk the Kool-Aid of the capital markets that even the best among us start thinking about, oh, like how can we keep pace with the market. We have to start accepting that the market is not trying to maximize human well-being or human value. It's trying to maximize economic productivity, more and more of which will be generated by software, artificial intelligence, uh, robots, and other advances. You mentioned something earlier that I want to dig into now, and that's called the freedom dividend. Um, you know, other other uh, word for it, and it's really an, an adaption of the concept of universal basic income. Can you explain to the listeners what, what the freedom dividend is? Oh, my gosh, I would love to. Uh, the freedom dividend is every American adult between 18 and 64 gets $1,000 a month, free and clear, from the government. Transfer it into your account, no questions asked, doesn't matter what you're doing, money you're making, what job you have, etc. Uh, so this is an old idea. Martin Luther King was for it as well as uh, many on the conservative side, a thousand economists signed a letter saying this was a good idea because it would support the economy uh, in 1971, where a law passed the House of Representatives installed in the Senate that would have made this a reality. So the freedom dividend is a universal basic income that we can make real. And as president, it's the first thing I'm going to sign uh, in January 2021 
And imagine, everyone who's listening to this, the sort of impact that $1,000 a month would have on your life and the lives of your family and friends, uh, where you could make better choices because instead of scrambling to have to meet needs on a, on, a, on a basic level every month, you might have a little bit more freedom and security to be able to look up, determine what you should be spending the money on. So everybody would get this. You know, the person driving, driving uh, the truck would get it, as well as Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Donald Trump. Yes. It's universal, no questions asked, no stigma, no administration, no case managers, nothing. And, and why did you decide to structure it that way? How is it going to be paid for? What, what, is the, what does the mechanism look like? So uh, the way I would pay for it, and one of the traps we're in right now, is that income tax does not harvest the gains from automation because you need people making money to, to have income tax be effective. So we need to transition to a value-added tax, um, which is tax that every other industrialized country has except for us. And so Amazon, for example, can, go, can make billions uh, in revenue in a quarter and say, hey, we didn't make any money, so no tax. Whereas the value-added tax they pay on every transaction. The reason why Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or whomever can get their $1,000 a month is that they're going to end up paying a lot more into the system through the VAT. It's an efficient way to fund uh, the freedom dividend, and it helps the people that need the opportunity the most, whereas the people that benefit the most from society end up paying into it. And so you think, so having that kind of framework, so one concern that people would have is that if, if you flush the economy uh, with that much new cash, obviously that's going to have an impact on, on inflation, et cetera. But you're saying by framing it that way, that's one way that it won't have an impact on inflation. Yeah. If you, if you look at the data, we printed $4 trillion for the banks and there was no inflation. A universal basic income at this level um, would add about $1.5 trillion to the economy. Uh, and the Roosevelt Institute did a study that showed that the freedom dividend would grow the economy by 13% and create 4.5 million new jobs, essentially in perpetuity. Because if more Americans have more money to spend, then the Main Street businesses do better, the hairdressers, the service providers, the restaurants, the tutors, everyone does better. And then you start new businesses, you hire um, so there's a more of a virtuous cycle. This is very pro-growth. It's good for the economy. It's a stimulus of human beings uh, and our way of life. And what exactly would it mean to addition, uh, to you know current current support safety net welfare programs that we have right now? What would be the cost in addition to uh, to existing programs that we have in place? The plan would be to allow anyone who's currently receiving benefits. Um, to just have an option, whether they'd prefer the freedom dividend of $1,000 a month with no administration and no questions asked. So if you're currently receiving $1,200 a month from disability, then you'd say, hey, I'll keep that. Um, whereas if you're getting less than that or you just prefer the freedom dividend, um, then you can opt in. And so the, the goal is to leave no one worse off. Um, I'm sort of the physician's principle of do no harm. But I know that most anyone would, would prefer $1,000 in cash to $1,000 in benefits, and the vast majority of recipients are receiving benefits at around that level. And talk to us about the, the Alaska Permanent Fund. What is that? Oh, my gosh. Thanks for raising it. So there is a state in the U.S. where they essentially have uh, basic income right now. Uh, Alaska, every man, woman, and child gets 1000 to $2,000 a year um, from oil revenue. And it was set up 36 years ago by a Republican governor saying, Alaskans just get the money themselves, and it's immensely popular. It has created thousands of jobs. It has improved children's health. Uh, it's made Alaska much less unequal. 
So this is a deeply American concept already. Uh, it's just we don't know about it because it's Alaska and it's kind of far away and cold. <laughs> but also, I mean, Alaska has certain benefits. You know, it, it has its, its oil and its, and its mineral leases. So, so it, it's unique. I mean, you know, the idea of, of putting something that's worked in Alaska, how that works in Maryland or how that works in Mississippi or how that works in, in Michigan is different. I mean, how, how do you see something like what's happened in Alaska working in a larger state or a state that doesn't have the same kind of consistent revenue uh, like oil and, and mineral leases? Well, to your point, I think it's nearly impossible for a state or locality to implement because people would just move across the border if it were significant. Alaska is far enough away where we're not going to move there <laughs> for one to two thousand dollars. And uh, forty states have a balanced budget amendment um, that make it impossible too. That's one reason I'm running for president is that this is a federal issue. This is a society-wide problem, and it's beyond the scope of any state or, or city to address. So when you're thinking about this, uh, this race for president, as people want to learn more about you, they want to learn more about, uh, about the freedom dividend, how do people learn more? How do people get engaged? Uh, how do people become part of, uh, of this large movement that you're pushing? My website is yang2020.com, uh, spelled like it sounds, Y-A-N-G. My name is Andrew Yang. If you Google it, my campaign website is the first thing that comes up. Um, and if you do want to read the book, which I'm very proud of and excited about, uh, the War on Normal People is now available for sale uh, everywhere. Uh, so would love that we need to make this real. We don't have much of a choice. Like things are going to get darker and darker, but there's an opportunity here, an almost unprecedented opportunity for us to rejuvenate our human values and build the society that we know is still possible. Uh, and so if you'd like to join us in that, please go to yang2020.com uh, and Let's make it happen in 2020. I can tell you the uh, the book, The War on Normal People. Uh, I've I had a chance to to read it early uh, and and honestly read it often. It is fascinating and it is important. So uh, Andrew Yang, businessman who just launched his presidential bid for 2020 for the Democratic nomination for the president of the United States. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on the future of work and uh, and also how we should be thinking about the freedom dividend as ways of preparing our, our nation for the future. Thank you so much for joining us today, man. Thank you, Wes. You've been listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. When we get back, why one New York Times economist writer thinks universal basic income is not only a bad idea, but actually it could be the poor that's hurt the most. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to the YPR monthly feature, Future City, where we examine the future of our cities. On this episode, the future of work and how automation is going to affect the economy. We've been exploring the idea of the universal basic income. We've just heard from a major UBI supporter, and now we're going to speak to someone who wants to offer some words of caution. So on the line with us now is Eduardo Porter, who is the economic scene columnist for the New York Times. He wrote an article back in 2016 entitled, A Universal Basic Income is a Poor Tool to Fight Poverty. Eduardo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Eduardo, you wrote this article arguing that UBI would not work uh, back in 2016. So I'm assuming that your thoughts have been changed in the past couple years? No, in fact, if anything, I'm more confident than I was then that there are many other policy levers that will do more 
um, and will imply less of a political haul um, at this stage in, in, the, in, the, in the history of our country. So I think the UBI is, um, a, a, at best, a very premature idea. And, and so how would you define a UBI? Well, I mean, the idea uh, of giving everybody money sounds great, but then you embed it into a political system like that of the United States, where any kind of concept of, of government-funded welfare has been in retreat for a good quarter century. So the political reality of this idea becomes, becomes very, very tenuous, the political strength of this idea. So when you say that there, you think that there are other things that could be more promising uh, along, the, along those lines, how do you see those conversations happening easier than the conversation around UBI? It is, it is spawned by this belief that there will be no jobs for people, and hence we need something like this to get you know, income spread through the population. But stepping directly to your, to your question, and I believe, by the way, that that is kind of a science fiction scenario that has really little purchase on reality. But in terms of within the reality that I see today, what, what you see in the, in the labor market and you see in the economy, I think that giving up on work is unnecessary and makes things politically much more complicated than if you could think of, well, how do I improve the well-being of our population, understanding that work is still going to be around. So 80% of Americans of prime age are still at work. The problem is that the jobs available are of very low quality, of certainly of lesser quality than, say, in the 1970s, when you could come out of high school and get a job in manufacturing with a fairly decent wage and good benefits and a fairly decent job security. Right now, if you don't have a, a bachelor's degree, you know, you are more likely to end up in a service sector job, you know, as it may be a home health care aide or working in retail. And those jobs are really dismal. They pay less. Your schedule is likely going to be a mess. And so there is really a problem of job quality for a lot of people. And so that, but then I think that the policy conversation should be about the quality of the jobs that we have and whether something can be done, A, to improve the quality of those jobs, and B, to maybe provide assistance to workers, say, in the form of a wage subsidy or expanding the earned income tax credit, which is a tool that exists today, to supplement the wages of workers in these lower quality jobs. So I think those types of conversations, you know, how do we make these jobs better jobs? How do we assist workers who are at this bottom level of the labor market are much more productive than starting a conversation with the assumption that there aren't jobs to be had and we therefore need a whole new structure to kind of like spread income throughout the, throughout the population. And the thing is, we've had and tried universal basic incomes in other countries. Uh, you know, we were speaking earlier about the fact that Alaska has actually tried it because of uh, because of their oil revenues. How has it worked in other places that have tried it out? Well, when you have an enormous rents from a natural resource like oil, as Alaska does, you know, sharing those rents with the population is perhaps a good idea, but those are, those are, that, that money isn't really the product of productive work. It's the rent. You know, you pull it out of the ground and it's there and you spread it around and it, it, it bolsters the income of, of the people there. But there, just the existence of the oil has pretty much solved your public finance conundrum. 
thinking about that in the context of the broader American economy, you have to think, well, where do we get the money? And we're not Alaska, so we don't like have this, you know, oil windfall that, that from where we can pull, or we're not Norway that it has a similar kind of oil windfall. So here we have to think of taxation, and you know, taxation to fund that money. If you're thinking of like doubling the tax to the tax revenue to GDP in order to pay for that that program, well, you're, that is something that the United States have never ever done. So you're thinking of a, of a really huge leap in terms of what this political system can deliver. Then you also have to think, well, if you're going to really provide everybody with a sufficient income on which to live, which, I mean, that's a really big assumption because a sufficient income on which to live is, what, $30,000? $30,000 you're talking about, upwards of $3 trillion right. in money. Um then you're going to have some labor market effects. You are going to have some disincentive to work. Um, I don't know how big it will be, but it will be probably not insignificant. And then you wonder, well, why? I mean, you have to wonder whether that is the most, again, the most effective way to help uh, uh, the population. So at the end of the day, it's the idea of giving everybody, you know, money to ensure that everybody's out of poverty sounds like a great one. But the thing is that you have to embed it into the political realities that we live in. So the question of how do you finance it and what other kind of effects does it have and are these effects good or bad on the economy should be compared against other possible policies that you could talk about and discuss that would also improve the welfare of people that are living at, on very low income. And you talk about the people who are living in very low income. You know, we're talking about anywhere from 50, 50 to 60 uh, million Americans currently that are living in poverty in both urban below and, the poverty line. Yes, that's, that's right. a lot of Americans that are living. In fact, I mean, by if you use the definition of the OECD, the, the, which is this grouping of uh, major industrialized nations, the United States is at the very bottom of the pack right. in terms of the poverty rate. And so, yes, we have, a, we have a large poverty problem. But again, what I'm suggesting is that there are policy solutions that are more feasible, um, probably do not have the efficiency loss of people you know, dropping out of the labor force that would otherwise not drop out of the labor force, um, and hence probably better to basically improve the lot of, these, of, 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 of this population. So... Most people look at the election uh, of 2016 and say essentially what it was, it was a clarion call about economic inequality, about people who feel left behind, who felt left behind. And, and for many people who do the, 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 the postmortem on the election, they say that really became the thing that either motive, motivated people to come out or the thing that motivated people to stay home. Uh, when you think about two years on. Has the conversation shifted where this has now become a, a more central point and these different solutions and ideas and thoughts have become more part of a mainstream conversation? Or do you think as a large society, we are still missing the point? Oh, I don't think that these the four years of the Trump administration are going to take the conversation anywhere nearer to these sorts of ideas. Um, if you look at surely the rhetoric, uh, the political rhetoric, during the campaign and even today was a lot about, you know, helping the blue collar America. But the policies that have been put in place have had, have if anything, gone in 180 degrees uh, opposite direction to that. 
So, you know, um, um, very notably the tax cuts, which amounted to basically a redistribution from the poor to the rich, um, really do not fit into any notion of anti-poverty or of reducing income inequalities or anything like that. I would sort of push against your representation of what the past election was about. I think it was about a certain part of the population feeling left behind. But it, I don't think it was the poor feeling left behind and the rich pulling away. The people that voted for President Trump were not poor. They're um, not at the bottom end of the American population. People at the bottom end, the bottom two quintiles, I think, turned out much more for Hillary Clinton. This was, I think, um, um, the, the people whose, whose sense of being left behind delivered a Trump presidency are more uh, people kind of like in the middle of the income distribution who felt left behind because the world has changed on them. And so they have less economic security than they would like and that they look back perhaps at their parents and that their parents have. And also, well, combined with that is also a sense of demographic change that has left them feeling more insecure about their, you know, their majority status in the U.S. population. And so it's not just understanding the situation, then a big part of that conversation became, and who's to blame? Yeah, a big, uh, yeah, the conversation is who's to blame, and President Trump decided to blame foreigners, you know, from immigrants and foreign countries who abuse the United States by trading with it. And so that was the nature of, the, of what he offered to this population. And I think that the diagnosis, the, 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 excuse me, the, the, the policy proposals are exactly wrong. And, it, and in no way do they go through, well, what real policies should we set in place if the economy is going to be like it looks like, like it, like it looks now, and even as, like we can foresee for the near future. Um, I don't think anything, anything in the Trump campaign platform or anything in the policies that he's proposed in then are about these items. So, so Eduardo, the, the final question, you know, now that we're, we're having conversations about UBI, we have a, a presidential candidate who's, who's running on the platform of UBI. But when you talk about UBI not being the best tool to be able to truly combat poverty, to truly focus on economic mobility, uh, do you think that this larger conversation about UBI, uh, particularly if it become, the conversation becomes centered around UBI, that it can potentially actually harm people in poverty because it's not getting to a bigger solution? Yeah, I, I, I sort of suspect that that is the case, that if, if, if UBI is going, to, is going to dominate the conversation about public policy, it certainly is going to hurt because I think that the real conversation that has to be had is looking at the future of the economy as, as we can foresee from now and say, well, how do we make that economy work better for workers? And so for me, the more interesting conversations are, gosh, we're going to have a need for a lot of home health care workers and a lot of personal care aides. And right now that job is terrible. How can we make that a better job? And it's not like we don't have uh, levers to do that. Medicaid is the biggest payer of this kind of service. So that, and Medicaid is a government program. So there are ways of thinking about this and of tackling this and thinking, okay, how do we make this the fastest growing job in the labor market, making it a good job or taking 
retail workers. Retail workers is one of the largest. Retail is one of the largest employers in the United States today, and those jobs are dismal. Well, is there anything that we can learn from um, other countries where these jobs are not as horrible about how this could be improved? And so I think that those conversations are way more productive um, um, than, well, let's, for, let's kind of forget about the labor market and think about how giving everybody a bunch of cash, because I think that that is politically much, much more difficult, and it'll just, it, it'll just stop the conversation. We've been speaking with Eduardo Porter, who is the economic scene columnist for The New York Times. Eduardo, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Take it easy. Thanks so much for joining us for another great episode of Future City. But before we take off, I want to share with you just a few final thoughts. So we hear a lot and think a lot about the state of our economy. And in many ways, our economy is functioning at maximum efficiency. Unemployment is down. Markets are up. So the question really isn't whether it's working. The question is whether it's working for everyone. Because at the same time markets are rising, so is inequality. We heard from presidential candidate Andrew Yang, who many will dismiss as a fringe candidate, someone who could never be president because he's a single-issue candidate. But what if that single issue is the issue that strikes at the fabric of what blankets our national aspirations? Freedom, hope, mobility, Equality. UBI is not new. Thomas Paine spoke about it in 1796. It was the pillar of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign in 1967. And as recently as in the past 12 months, industry titans like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Mark Zuckerberg have trumpeted its exploration. Some will say it's too expensive. Some will say the political gridlock will make it impossible and that human creativity and ingenuity will temper the concerns of a jobless future. And these are all valid. But the underlying reason for the conversation, the fact that 60 million people live in poverty and tens of millions more live on the cusp, that our society's most vulnerable continue to be afterthoughts in conversation about our nation's future. This should not be a fringe issue. It should be the issue. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. We welcome your feedback, and you can contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. My handle is at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit wypr.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. Until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive.